If salvation is predicated on my human effort, in some way, shape, or form on my performance, which is what most people think, they see works not as the fruit of conversion, but also as a root of conversion, then God could never make the promise of Romans 8.1. He promised us there is now, today, not later, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Dr. Brogy's sermon entitled, Our Great Salvation. We are in the book of Romans chapter 8 where Pastor Carl is teaching on the doctrine of eternal security and we will see that there is no difficulty that we can fathom that will separate us from the unwavering love of God that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join us in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 31 as we continue. This is why the Apostle Paul can open this great chapter with the words of 8 in verse 1. Therefore, there is now, circle that word now, in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That three-letter word emphasizes the truth that I do not have to wait for the final judgment to find out whether or not I am accepted by God. However, if salvation is predicated on my human effort, in some way, shape, or form on my performance, which is what most people think. They see works not as the fruit of conversion, but also as a root of conversion. Then God could never make the promise of Romans 8.1. He promised us there is now, today, not later, but now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am eternally secure. I am not condemned. There is now no condemnation. No one can condemn me because God has already condemned sin and has substitute the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading further into verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. After he died, Christ Jesus was raised. It was not just that he rose, but he was raised by the Father. Now, you cannot dissect the Trinity. There is one God, but he exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so, throughout Scripture, you see each member of the Godhead working together. Who gave you a spiritual gift? You say the Holy Spirit did. He did, but so did Christ, according to Ephesians 4, and so did God the Father, according to Romans 12. Who created the world? You say, God the Father did, yes, but all things were created through Christ, and the Spirit was involved in creation, the Bible teaches. And so, who raised Christ from the dead? Now, this slide might be helpful to you. Understand that Jesus was involved in His own resurrection. There's a slide there somewhere, is there? There we go. All right. See, it's just like that. All you have to do is click your fingers. <laughs> The son was involved. He said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again, John chapter 10. At the start of his ministry, Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. He's speaking of his own power to take up his life out of the grave. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, is involved in this process of bringing us out of the grave. He was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Paul will write. 
So while both the Son and the Spirit are involved in the resurrection of Christ, ultimately God the Father is emphasized and given the credit for the resurrection from the dead. And there are many passages that affirm that. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And he said, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, speaking of the Father, but God raised him up again. And then in the end of the sermon, he says, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In his second sermon in Acts 3, he said, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, in fact, to, a fact to which we are witnesses. So when Paul affirms here, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who is raised, this statement is significant. It's keying off of a great prophecy found in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, because when God the Father, through the Son, and by the agency of the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, He was saying, I've accepted His death. I've accepted the wrath I've poured out upon my sinless Son, and I have demonstrated He the Son when I raised Him from the dead. So no one can condemn us because God the Father has received Christ's death as a payment, and so there is no condemnation. Look again at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Not only did Jesus die for us and was raised for us, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he intercedes for us. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. This one was actually built perfectly based on the actual di uh, dimensions that are given in the Old Testament. Some of, you, some of you were with me when we were in Israel, and we saw some born-again Jews who use this as a witnessing tool out there in the desert. Some years ago at our vacation Bible school, our children built an Old Testament tabernacle. And the children learned that while in the tabernacle there were many pieces of furniture, there were no chairs. There was no place for the high priest to sit down. When the high priest went into uh, the Holy of Holies or the various places to make different kinds of sacrifices, he could never sit down. And the writer to the Hebrews keys off of that. Listen to these words. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. But not only did he sit down because his payment for sin was eternally paid for and complete, the text says he also intercedes for us. The Bible calls the Lord Jesus our advocate with the Father. And so when Satan accuses us, he intercedes for us. Now, do you think Judge Jesus is going to condemn us? The one who died for you, the one who was raised for you, the one who was seated for you, the one who is interceding for you? I tell you, no, he will not. He will not condemn you because as the chapter begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the fifth affirmation concerning our great salvation, so that we might know without any doubt 
that we can never, ever lose our salvation, that we are eternally secure in Christ. The child of God can have no successful separation. The child of God can have no successful separation. Notice the fifth question that he asked beginning here in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the devil would like you to believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ. He has convinced some Christians of the false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. By the way, that doctrine did not appear in the history of the church until the 16th century as Jacobus Arminius introduced it. But it is wrong. The Bible teaches that once we are saved, we are saved forever. But the devil would like you to believe that there's grounds for which you are, can be opposed. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be accused. The devil would like you to believe that there are grounds for which you can be condemned. The devil would like you to believe that there are needs that God will not meet. The devil would like you to believe that somehow you can be separated from the love of God. And so in this final paragraph where we will spend most of our time this morning, here in Romans 8, Paul asks questions about the persistent, never-ending, steadfast love of God in Christ. Here in verses 35 to 39, Paul answers, he stresses, he highlights, he accentuates, and he illustrates not only the tenacity but the permanency of Christ's love for the believer. He anticipates someone reading the letter to possibly ask, but Paul, there are things that happen in this life that are very difficult. Maybe these are evidences that God has stopped loving me. And so Paul begins here in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation. No tribulation cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Now, some of your translations say trouble. But the King James and the New American Standard, with great precision and accuracy, translates it tribulation, because there's a difference between troubles and tribulations. I prefer this reading tribulations, because though we tend to blend it together in English, and we just speak of, you know, trials and tribulations as being all the same thing, they are clearly not in Scripture. Tribulations do not refer to your aches and pains, your fears, your sicknesses, your frustrations, your heartaches, your disappointments in life. Now, certainly all tribulations are a kind or a type of trial, and so it would fit under the admonition that we studied months ago, last December in James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But while all tribulations are a kind of trial, not all trials are a kind of tribulation. And there's a distinction. He's already illustrated in Romans chapter 5 this Greek word, thalipsis. It's a word that means pressure. And it refers to the pressure or the opposition of an unbelieving world on the believer. The word is a technical term that is used of the suffering that God's people experience at the hand of unbelievers. And Jesus reminds us in the last of the last days, it will certainly increase. Speaking of that time frame during the tribulation, Jesus said, for those days will be a time of tribulation, thalipsis such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. 
Once the church is removed, the birth pangs begin to unfold. The birth pangs have not yet come. People broadly say, well, we're in the birth pangs and hurricanes. and No, they're not here yet. The first half of Matthew 24 perfectly parallels Revelation 6. And then there's an event in the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. People's breath is taken away because now they can see all the judgments that will follow after the seals, and they will see the uh, bold judgments and all that will happen. Tribulation. But we have it today. The church has already and always known it. And though we may not be in the birth pangs, I'm telling you, we're full term. (laughs) The pregnancy is ready to let loose. The water is ready to break. God is coming to catch up His church. I think of these children here, and I think of the abuse that is going on in our nation against children. They're being taught in the government schools in Beaufort County to question your gender, whether you're a boy or a girl. Little kids are being taught this garbage. And that's what it is. It is sheer, unadulterated garbage. And now at the Olympics, we've got some guy who's now a girl lifting weights, and he's the champion. He is no champion in my eyes. John writes these words. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Same word, thalipsis. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so in Bible days, the word thalipsis was used outside of the Bible to describe a heavy sled weighted down that was dragged over stalks of wheat to separate the heads of the grain from the chaff. In Latin, it's tribulum, which gives us our word tribulation. And it's a word that refers to when life is crushing you because unbelievers are opposing you. Even today, we sometimes loosely say, well, I feel like a truck ran over me, or my spirit has just been crushed by the blows of life. And Paul warns that this can happen through tribulation. He told those saints, Joel would never tell you this, through many tribulations, ellipses, same words, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation cannot separate us from the love of God. Jesus said, in the world you will have philipsis, tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So the heartless tribulation of an ungodly world can have no part in separating you from God's love. And God wants to make it clear that when these things happen, they happen for a purpose. He has already said He's working everything together for good to shape us into the image of His Son. And by the way, the servant is not greater than his master. If they did these things to the master, they will do them to his people. So mark tribulation off the list. Look at the next one, distress. Distress. If you really want to feel for the Greek word, just knock off the first two letters of distress and you've got the Greek meaning, stress. Stress, it's actually a, a compound word. And uh, it was used to describe a, a narrow place, like a narrow pass in the mountains. That's one half of the word, and the other half of the word meant to, to press. And putting them together, it carries the idea of to confine, to squeeze, to compress you. Now, we all have obligations and responsibilities and duties in this life that sometimes seem to box us in. 
Perhaps you feel like you're in a dead-end job this morning, or maybe you feel like you're squeezed because you have no job at all. Perhaps you feel squeezed by some health challenges or financial obstacles or some family issues, and you feel somewhat bound and boxed in and pressed by the daily ground of life. Your space is narrow. You're under distress. By the way, you ever wonder why when they do advertisements, they always do it in these wide open spaces? You know, a woman's out in the middle of a field on some mountain, you know, hanging her clothes. And I mean, who washes the clothes out in a field? And, and they show some car either going up the Blue Ridge Parkway or through the desert at these high speeds where there's nothing around, never in some tight, confined traffic jam. Look, you can mark tribulation off the list and you can mark distress off the list. Then he adds a very closely related word to tribulation, and it's translated persecution. Do you see it there? It's not as intense as tribulation, but it's enough to knock a lot of people off center. The Greek word persecution means to be rejected, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be abandoned, to be mistreated. In fact, in the parable of the sower, Jesus raises the word persecution to describe the man on rocky soil who comes close to becoming a Christian but does not. Why? Because of persecution. Listen to what Mark records. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. There, there's an emotional response. They come to a church like this, they get excited, their, their heart is stirred. Luke adds, and they believe for a while, but he's referring to belief here, not here. And it's important to distinguish the context of the use of the word pastuo in the New Testament. They immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises, because of the word, they immediately fall away. Some people start coming to a church like this, and they are converted. And their friends say, what happened to you? You're fanatical now. You're one of those born-again people. What are you, in some kind of a cult? You don't come out and party with us and booze it up and sex it up? What's your problem, pal? And more and more, there's growing opposition for the person who's genuinely regenerated by the Spirit and changed by the Spirit of God. Look, you can hardly attend a church like this without experiencing some kind of opposition and persecution. The word is used to describe ridicule and, and, and mockery, like Paul and Barnabas knew at Pisidian Antioch. Listen to these words. Luke writes for us from Acts 13. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution, same word as in Romans 8, against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now, sticks and stones of persecution can hurt you, but I'm telling you, they cannot divide you or sever you from the love of Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus taught that with persecution actually comes blessing. Blessed, we like to say blessed. For some reason, when we get to the Beatitudes, we go to the old English, blessed. But it's blessed. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Same word and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Don't go home with your head between your legs sucking your thumb. Why rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Mark persecution off the list. It cannot possibly sever you from God's love. How about famine? Can famine remove you from the love of Christ? Well, God promises to supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. But because we live in a fallen world, Christians can come under the same difficulties sometimes that the unbeliever does. And sometimes when the unbeliever experiences difficulties like famine, God has their attention. When you're staring at death in the face, sometimes the only way to look is up, and God has His people in the midst of that. Why? As a witness to proclaim that there's life beyond the grave where God's voice boxes that people might believe. And so God sees through an eternal lens. He sees the long view, and sometimes He knows it's better to have an empty stomach than to have a lost soul for all of eternity. So you can cross famine off the list. That can't separate you from the love of Christ. How about nakedness? Now, I know the words famine and nakedness are virtually unheard of in the American church. Not having enough food to eat is somewhat obscure to us as Americans. Not having enough clothing to wear, well, that's pretty weird because we take piles of our clothing and we bring them to the goodwill because we've got so many in our closets. But large numbers of God's people around the world don't have what we have. Many have been forced out of Muslim communities with barely the clothes on their back. I think of Paul in that dirty, dark, damp prison and he is cold and he asked Timothy to bring his cloak. Paul is reminding us that when these things happen, this is not a sign that God no longer loves us. How about peril? Can peril separate you from the love of Christ? Now, the Greek word for peril means dangers or hazards or threats. And I suppose if anyone could speak with authority about perils, it was the Apostle Paul. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 11. In journeys often... In perils, same identical word, translated dangers in some of your texts. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Earlier in the same letter, he described these perils as momentary light affliction. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In other words, Paul evaluated this life in light of the next. And so he said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When I read verses like 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, you were beaten. Paul, you were starved. Paul, you were lashed. Paul, you were stoned. Paul, you were pickled in the Mediterranean Sea. You were scorned. You were run out of synagogues, out of towns. You were despised. You were hated. And Paul calls it all momentary light affliction. Now, most of us have never even broken a fingernail for Christ, much less the kinds of dangers that he's describing. What was it that allowed the Apostle Paul to have such a perspective? He lived with eternity in mind. He took the heartache of this life, and he put it out there in light of the eternal glory to come. He's already said here in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present 
time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider, the King James says, I reckon. It's a mathematical term. He's already used it in Romans 6 chapter. It was a bookkeeping term where you put to one's account, you add up all these, you add up all these. And Paul says, when I add up the glories to come, anything I can go through in this life is at best momentary light affliction. They don't even compare with the glory that is yet to be revealed. That's a big biblical axiom. You can count on it. You can stand on it. You can cross perils off your list of something that can separate you from Christ's love. Let's keep reading verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if you read the list carefully, and if you know the life of the Apostle Paul through his epistles and the book of Acts, he had already experienced every one of these seven things except the last one, the sword. But he will experience that in a matter of months after Nero takes his head off. Missiologists predict that every year some 600 to 700,000 believers worldwide meet death through the sword. But what did Jesus tell us? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both bodies, both soul and body in hell. So you can mark sword off the list. Paul's comprehensive statement is clear. Not anyone nor anything can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no difficulty that you can think of that can change the unfaltering, unchanging, eternal, everlasting love that God has for you. And so to prove this, just to remind us, he quotes Psalm 44 here in verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if you know Psalm 44, then you know it depicts the persecution and hatred of pagan Gentiles against the Hebrew people. And they, the Hebrew people were being derided they were made a laughing stock. They were being hated. But the psalmist is reminding us that God was there through all of it. Though he had not yet experienced death, it was like death could come at any time. That's how much they were hated. Paul spoke of that, how he carried about in his own body this concept of death. For your sake, meaning because of our love for you, O God, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're serving you. But look what they're doing to us. And Paul can take this verse, and he can apply it not only to himself, but to the Romans who are about to come under the Neronian persecutions, where through his sadistic, wicked ways, Nero will take the believers and make them literal living torches dipped in oil to light his gardens. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Our Great Salvation. Also remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Our Great Salvation 021. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app 
found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.